Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Before we get started on our story today, Glenn, I think you have some good news for us. I do. I'm very, very excited about this, Brandon. My Lovecraftian horror story, Goodbye to All That, was just published as an audiobook by the Tales to Terrify podcast. It's read by Drew Sebastiani, and he does just an absolutely marvelous job at reading it. There's a link in the show notes, and of course, I'd be delighted if people gave it a listen. It's genuinely fantastic, Glenn. I really hope our listeners take some time to listen to it. Well, with that, Brandon, we should get on with the show. So what are we talking about this week? This episode, we're talking about the short story, IBEM, originally published in Orbit 7 in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection, Endangered Species. And Brandon, I'm just going to say right from the start that I loved this story. It has wilderness adventure. It has romantic descriptions of birds. And it has robots. Yeah, this story really impressed me. I think it's a lot better than it really has any right to be. And I'm excited to get to the recap here. All right, well, let's, let's do it. Let's dig in on it. Why don't you take us through the plot of IBEM? IBEM opens with the titular character lying in the dark in a hut of frozen earth and pounded snow. His transformer ratio is 0.06. And his identity is 887332. His friends call him IBEM. He is recording himself on a system that can only record for 30 minutes. Once the 30 minutes are up, the recording erases the message from the beginning through the following 30 minutes. This method of recording came from flight recorders used over 100 years ago that recorded the last transmissions of those picturesque air-burning rockets called jets. So this is a really interesting detail here, Brandon. I think my math then would suggest that this story is taking place perhaps around the year 2100, perhaps, you know, a little a little earlier than that, a little before that. But this is not all that far in the future. I agree. I think it's somewhere between 21 and 2200. I mean, we're still using air-burning jets today, so it could take any place where this technology is extant. We're given a few odd dictations where IBEM addresses an unknown person. And I'd like to read one section here that stands out from the rest of the story because of this. IBEM says this, To tell the truth, I have said a great many things you would not like during the past 18 or 20 hours as I lay here talking to myself in the dark. Yes, talking, even though the voltage in my speaker is so low that Mark, lying a few feet away, cannot hear me. He cannot hear me, but I know he is awake, lying there, eating and thinking. I cannot see his eyes, but how they burn in the dark. Yeah, and Brandon, there's actually the line even before that paragraph begins done this as well and has a comment I- embedded in it that I-, I really have questions about. The line is this. I will be beyond the reach of your vindictive programming. Voltage gone, mind and memory zeroed. And there's a couple things to note here. One, first of all, he's angry about this, but he also is accusing someone else of being vindictive, this you're, the person to whom he is speaking. And I'm unclear about who he thinks is going to be listening to his tape, this person who's going to be vindictive. To me, this is an unresolved puzzle that Wolf offers us in the story. We understand his rage by the end of the story, but who he's addressing in his recorded messaging is very unclear to me. IBEM goes on about his past. We learn that he was trained by CDC in a creche, which is a word that really connotes something like a daycare. 
CDC was called back from active service because he was too old. We learn about his vinyl skin that was yellowed on his neck and the back of his hands, where the, quote, harsh noon light saw it too often. Yeah, when this character CDC is introduced, he talks about uh, how old he is and he muses about how many times he has seen the trumpeter swans black against the morning sun. And I did the math here, Brandon. What he says is that he's seen them 123 times and it, that's an average of 3.8622 times per year, which puts him just shy of 32 years old. 32, of course, being the age at which Christ is crucified. I don't know that there's any significance to this, but I don't think it's accidental. Me neither. And I'm really glad you did the math because that opens up the story just a little bit for me in a way that I had not expected it to. Um, We get a detail about Mark, who Ibem is in this hut with, who is retiring when he's 30. But we'll get to that in just a minute. We learn that Ibem has the same face pattern as all the other robots in his crush cycle. He and his crush mates would spend their free time in a sort of general store. The woman who runs the general store, according to Ibem, either didn't know or she pretends not to know that Ibem and his peers were different people. She just thought that she had the same man coming into the store 20 or more times a day. It was good business for her because the rest of her customers knew that robots patronized her store and they'd come in and she'd sell these customers goods. And we learn that the woman calls all of the robots by the same name. She calls them Mark. Yeah, there's a number of really fascinating details here, Brandon. First of all, I want to just point out that it's really important for Ibem and for his friends that they pass as human in this soda shop. This is definitely a concern of his throughout the story. There's another interesting note here, Brandon, where he says, at least several times when I was there, people, humans, I mean. And so this sort of suggests that Ibem thinks of the robots as uh, thinks of robots as people, or at least is coming to, that he's, he is ceasing to perhaps, or beginning to cease to distinguish between human persons and machine persons. Yeah, there's a bit more on this later when he's at his uh, launch pad, where he sees a machine sweeping the floor, and he says, to them, I must be human. Ibem dictates that he went to the store only once with CDC. And I should mention here that CDC sounds like I'm saying the letters C, D, and C, but IBEM calls CDC by this spelling, which is C-E-E-D-E-E-S-Y. This is a bit of obfuscation that Wolf is playing with with names in this story. Um, That will be fun when we get to IBEM (laughs) and what his name means. Ibem thinks he was able to get CDC to leave the compound where they all live because Ibem is falling behind in his marine biology course of study. Yeah, and there's a junior exam coming up. And Brandon, this is just really fantastic world building because even though this course in marine biology and these junior exams don't matter at all to the plot of the story, they let us know that there is something important that Ibem, that our protagonist, deeply cares about, that there are things that are at stake, that he's a character with with motivation, and that the world in which he operates is bigger than just our story. And I have to say, too, Brandon, 
I really want to know more about life in this robot school where they're having junior exams about marine biology. Like I really want, I want Wolf to go back to this world and, and write us a series of school stories with robots, like really badly. That would be incredible. What's the most fascinating thing to me about this detail is that in our last story, Horrors of War, all of the robots had programming. And that was it. They were just programmed to act a certain way. And though their programming included some of these human characteristics like humor, um, camaraderie, things like that, in this story, we see robots learning about the world as part of their training. And to me, that is an incredibly fascinating detail and a cool bit of the evolution of Wolf's thinking about how robots operate in his fiction. CDC and IBEM talk about why so few people are going out into the amazing wilderness. They also talk about why most of humanity has concentrated in cities. IBEM suggests that it's because of food synthesizers and these great ships that can travel distances with ease. Yeah, Brandon, this is pretty awesome here, actually. They have Star Trek replicators. Uh, Gene Wolfe has invented them because they don't exist in the original series. They don't exist until the next generation. So, so here is, here is Wolfe uh, uh, sort of predicting and prefiguring that. And we're going to come back to this question of humans going outside, I think, in our discussion, Brandon. But I want to point out a couple of other details here well, uh, that come up when CDC is talking about humanity and its relationship with uh, the wild, with uh, the wilderness uh, aspects of, of Earth. He tells a story about how he encountered a human, a lone human, who had gone out uh, to visit the Grand Canyon to, in fact, raft through the Grand Canyon along the Colorado River. And this human had done this because St. Kennedy the Less had once done so. And he describes this man as a fanatic ecumenical neo-Catholic. And St. Kennedy the Less here, Brandon, must be Robert F. Kennedy, who famously rafted the Grand Canyon in 1967, and then, of course, was assassinated in 1968. And presumably, St. Kennedy the Great is President John F. Kennedy, and that they've both been canonized by the Catholic Church. And Perhaps even this rafting trip, which is not really described here as a rafting trip so much as having uh, traveled down the river on an air mattress. And I suspect that this must be one of RFK's miracle stories that helps him become canonized or something like that. I love this detail in this story. One, for our listeners who don't know, ecumenicism is, is a practice in Christian denominations where you're basically allowed to take communion in churches outside of your own denomination. And it's pretty controversial practice. Um, if you are a Protestant or like a Presbyterian, there are certain churches you can take communion and certain churches you can't. Most people ignore this today, but this was like a really big deal for a while in church history, even in the 20th century. And we should also note that it was a really big deal that John F. Kennedy was a Catholic being elected to office. This is equivalent to the way people questioned and brought up that Mitt Romney was a Mormon and people dug into um, the Book of Mormon and looked at the Mormons' desire to conquest America and rule it and all this stuff. A lot was being brought into question when Kennedy was president about his Catholic ties and if the Pope would be Kennedy's authority figure on earth or the person who he would answer to as an authority or if it would be the American people. Brandon, you make a really great point here about this reading of the word ecumenical in 
ecumenical neo-Catholic because I didn't read it that way. Because for me, in my period of late antiquity, the word the word ecumenical just means worldwide, and it actually essentially means the same exact thing that Catholic means, which is just universal. And these are both words that mean it's the church everyone belongs to. But I think that your usage of it is the usage that Wolf means here. And so, do you think then? Is he? Do you think Wolf here then is suggesting that there's some kind of almost repatriation or rehabilitation of the rift that Martin Luther began? I don't know. It's an interesting world-building point. It's a great detail in the story, and it really brings the background of the world alive in a way that causes you to grapple with these types of questions. Again, Wolf is also dealing with his response to the Second Vatican Council. Right, which came up in uh, How the Whip Came Back. That's right. So it turns out that IBEM is going to take one of these ships that can allow people to travel great distances quickly to his first posting, to his first job. IBEM is a robot forest ranger. Um, he describes how the ship rises on a pillar of fire, and it's indicated that he goes all the way into space, and the ship comes down slowly at a trajectory that would have him land in the desired landing pad in the area where he's going. Ibem gets off the ship, and he notices that there are machines in the old port building where he's going to be stationed. And he realizes um, that to those machines, he must seem like a man, even though humans know he is distinct from them. Yeah, and this is the second point where we've seen our protagonist, where we've seen Ibem thinking about his place in the world and the relationship that he and his kind have with other types of creatures, I guess, around him, right? Which is humans and and machines. And we're getting the sense here as Wolf is building this world and building this character with these details, we get this sense that Ibem is lonely, maybe. He feels like he doesn't really fit in anywhere, that robots are kind of existing in this liminal space between sentient creature and machine and aren't treated as either by creatures that are fully one or fully the other. And I think he has some angst and some anxiety about this. Absolutely. Um, and and that's that comes through in the way that he dictates his orders to whoever's going to listen to this recording. And I want to point out here, again, in this paragraph I'm about to read, how much of this story is really caught up with time. Ibem says this, my orders had stated that I would be met here by someone from my assigned station, but for over an hour, I was by myself in the middle of that crowd. In retrospect, I think the experience was good for me, and perhaps it was planned that way. I had been anticipating the loneliness of duty in some remote part of the wilderness outside of the cities, and I had been trained for that, but this was different. It taught me that I was vulnerable, after all, and it made me accept Mark when he came more than I would have otherwise. And Glenn, he made a really good point about his loneliness and vulnerability that he begins to experience right after he sees these machines doing maintenance work and cleaning the place. But in this passage, we also see his fixation with time. He predicts the future. He notes how long he's waiting. He has anxiety, as you brought up, or angst about what he's going to be doing, and he reflects upon his training. What I think is happening here is that Wolf is putting the paragraph about the spectrum of machines that are doing work 
and their relationship to humanity in conjunction with Ibem's reflections about time and experiencing the passage of time and worrying about time. And I think that Wolf is making a small statement here about consciousness. Right, because my microwave doesn't worry about time. If it were to worry about time, if it were to tell me when I come home that, Glenn, I've been bored all day without you around, I would start to worry about its feelings. I would also move, but I would start to worry about its feelings. Yeah, that's right. And I, I just, I love the way Wolf handles that here. And it's a big feature of the story. It is. And there's one more thing here, Brandon, that I want to bring up uh, in this moment that this scene is a person waiting to be picked up in the airport and is feeling lonely and bored, which is not a feeling that anyone in our society has anymore when they're waiting at the airport. Because we are all, if you go into an airport now at the baggage claim and see people waiting to be picked up, they're all on their phones. They're not having any time to be bored and alone. And I think it's important here that you, what you bring up is, and that you, you point to here, Brandon, that Wolf is pointing to here is that in the absence of stimulus, we can take moments of reflection. And this is something I think that we are rapidly losing from our society. And it's interesting here to see how much Wolf points to self-reflection as a marker of sort of full humanity. Yeah, I, Ben, is absolutely obsessed with it. I mean, that this whole story is about reflection. Well, now that I'm done complaining about kids and their cell phones, Brandon, why don't you take us into the, the next scene here? Yeah, absolutely. So Mark uh, arrives to pick Ibem up. He's a human forest ranger, and he's going to take Ibem to their wilderness station. If it's not clear to the readers and listeners by now, all of the robots are named after computers from the dawn of cybernetics. CDC, as we mentioned before, is named after the Control Data Corporation. Many other robots we learned were named Mark after the Mark 7 and Mark 8 systems. IBM, without saying so, is clearly named for the IBM. Yeah, and it's interesting here, Brandon, that you pointed out the Mark 7 and Mark 8 as a reference to the Harvard Mark series of computers that were really important during the Cold War. Uh, I think this, that's clearly what's happening here. But I don't know if you recall, Brandon, but the, the computers in of Relays and Roses were also Mark models. That was the Mark 20 that was in use there by the that company. That's uh, right. That's so I, right. So I think this might be also a bit of a reference uh, there, though clearly Wolf, uh, Wolf has taken the name from the Harvard Mark series to begin with. But I don't know. I'd like to think these are the same, the same fictional universe here. So IBEM relates some information that Mark gives him to us, to his audience about where they're going to go. Um, and we learn from this that the station is in the Arctic of Alaska. They arrive at the station. IBEM discovers that along with Mark, a very old immobile artificial intelligence and a ranger that was just two crash cycles ahead of IBEM are present at the station. Yeah, it's really interesting here, Brandon. You say a sort of what you, immobile artificial intelligence. And it's interesting, what, he, what IBM thinks is that the, the station boss is one of us. That's the line that he's used. But it is important, I think, here, it's significant here to note that he is immobile, that he is perhaps a sentient computer and artificial intelligence, as you say, but he is not a robot in the sense of having a mobile body. And so I think that's very important here that IBM does not think of mobility as a requirement for being one of his kind. That's not a distinguishing characteristic for him. Yeah, Glenn, I think that's an excellent point. 
Yeah, and one more thing I want to point out about this scene, Brandon, is that the robots at the station or the the sentient machines at this station, they're all hanging out together and making in-jokes with each other. And IBM actually feels bad that they're excluding Mark from these jokes, that they're excluding Mark from their community. And so here, again, we just get the third beat in this character development here, this development of IBM's character as someone who is perhaps feeling lonely and and isolated and searching for belonging, searching for community. And he, he finds it here, but then is now having angst and anxiety about excluding the human from it. Right. He certainly empathizes with Mark. And we learn more about that as they go out together into the wilderness the day after IBM arrives at the station. They have some conversations, and and IBM is really concerned that that he hurts Mark's pride. So IBM encourages Mark to talk about bears for a little while. Yeah, there's a really gorgeous line here, Brandon, on on, uh, IBM's first night out in the wilderness that I just want to read just because it's beautiful, and I think that hearing it will make the world a better place uh, for anyone who might be listening. The sentence is this. After he had gone to bed, I sat up half the night staring at the pole star, so bright and so high here, and listening to the sounds the wind made in the little spruce trees around us. This was so evocative to me. I could feel myself there. I could hear this rustling. I could see the North Star. It just was, it was just gorgeous writing. There's some really wonderful nature writing in this story, which is part of what makes it so good, at least in my opinion. On their fifth day in the wilderness, they get caught by a storm and their snow jeep, the vehicle they took out, it breaks down. They try to fix it and very quickly realize that it's beyond repair. They cannot get anyone from the main station either on their radio. Very quickly, the radio battery dies because of the cold. And without the radio or any source of power, they realize they're going to have to wait it out until someone comes for them. Mark builds a shelter, and IBEM is forced to power down incrementally. We learn that if IBEM powers down completely, he's going to lose everything that makes him him. He's going to lose his training, and he's going to lose his sense of self entirely. So he's forced to lay immobile in the shelter, watching Mark survive Mark brings in a seal that he kills, and as he does this, he checks to see if Ibem is dead. Ibem powers up, and he loses his temper at Mark, and he's angry at Mark's capacity for survival in this situation. He says this, We are the advance of the future, not you men. All your stupid human history has been just your own replacement by us, and there's nothing, not one thing that you can do that we can't do better. Why don't you help me? And it's just a wonderful little outburst from IBEM. And Mark understands the situation, and he reassures IBEM that he'll think of something to get them out of it. Yeah, Brandon, these lines are really powerful. They're they're angry and and bitter at the same time and but these last few lines actually reminded me of a Star Trek Voyager episode it's an it's an episode called Revulsion which is about an artificial life form that becomes disgusted by humanoids and begins murdering them and and in particular the the it was really the the filthy seal blubber is really the line here that made me think of it that's right mark is feasting on 
this seal blubber in order to eat fat to survive because he's a hum- human being. Yeah, and which I, I mean, it does seem gross to me as well. I'm not sure I really want to eat, watch you eat filthy seal blubber either, Brandon. But I, I wouldn't have this quite this level of revulsion at it. I, I, I think. But I, we'd be just, sharing it, Glenn. We, we, thanks, Brandon. Thanks for taking care of me. So Ibem notes in his dictation that another storm has come in. And that means that whoever has been sent out to look for him, and Glenn, I want to ask you what you thought if I've been using this phrase in particular, that it's just looking for him. Um, Whoever was sent out is caught in a new storm. He wonders if a half hour has passed, and he has no way of noting the passage of time. So he begins his dictation over again. He is lying in the dark. Yeah, Brandon, this is really fantastic here that Ibem, in his narrative, switches from thinking about this situation as being something that he and Mark are in together and thinking about it as something that's happening only to him. You know, he switches from us to me here. So Mark, at this point, is now fully excluded from Ibem's sense of his own community or group identity, which we see beginning in the ranger station when he's sharing in-jokes with the other other robots and artificial intelligences. And so I think here we can point to kind of a, an arc, in some ways maybe even almost a full circle, for IBEM's journey through loneliness uh, and a search for community, that he begins with feeling like he's in a community with his robot brothers at the creche, but wants to... F- seem human to other humans feels lonely when machines don't see him as a machine but humans don't see him as a human then finds a community in with the robots in the ranger station worries that the human is feeling excluded from that and then ends with not caring that the human is excluded from it and in fact actively excluding the human from his his group identity absolutely and there's some real classic wolf trickery here at the end as well um, that I didn't mention, where Ibem is concerned that he might be going mad, which is a fun way to call into question everything that Ibem has just dictated to whomever, this person we don't know, for the past 30 minutes. Yeah, Brandon, this is a great point that you raise, and I'm not really sure what to do with this, but the opening sentence of this story, the opening grammatical clause of this story is, I am lying. Now, it means lying down. And the sentence is this, I am lying, comma, I say again, comma, in the dark, right? And I have to wonder if there's anything truthful here. I know. It really threw me off to have a wolf story open with with the narrator explicitly saying, I am lying. This is a game Wolf loves to play with his readers. What is fascinating about it to me is that much of the early dictation that IBEM gives us is constructed in this very similar way. A clause comma, second clause, comma, third clause. And so I think Wolf tries to cover this up. And this is an early example of Wolf's mastery of dialogue, which he shows us in Book of the Long Sun more than any other book. But um, he tries to cover up this statement by creating grammatical constructions that are very similar to it throughout the early part of this narrative. Yeah, I'd be real interested to hear what uh, members of the Wolf Pack have to say about this line and, and how they read IBEM here as an unreliable narrator uh, of sorts. But uh, I think, Brandon, at this point, we should move into our discussion. Absolutely. 
So, Brandon, there are two things I want us to talk about in this story. The second is the relationships between, or the relationship between humanity and robotity. But the thing I'd like us to talk about first is just to have a little fun looking at the world, the speculative fiction world that Wolf builds for us here that I think both you and I found extraordinarily charming. I thought this was a place I might like to go live. Yeah, I really loved this world. And I looked up a lot of these locations and was really, really pleased to see that we can go visit these places in Alaska if we want. Wolf brings up this great little note that where they're going is north of the abandoned city of Kivalina, which is just this old wilderness outpost town in northern Alaska. And it's really in the Arctic Circle. The National Forest is still there. It's Kobuk National Forest. It's awesome. I just love that this was a feature of the story. Yeah, Brent, I would love to get a chance to go spend some time in the wilderness of Alaska. Um, I think, I don't know if listeners are aware, but mountaineering is one of my major hobbies. And uh, some of my, my fondest wolf memories actually are, are reading reading wolf, rereading wolf uh, in a tent in the Canadian wilderness. Oh, that's amazing. I Yeah, I just, I know we mentioned it before, but the nature writing in this particular short story is really good. So as beautiful as you and I find the outdoors, and you and I have spent some time in the wilderness uh, together, I'm really shocked to at this, I don't know, what feels to me almost a dystopian vision of, a humani- of humanity that won't go outside anymore, that is confined completely to cities. And so I want to ask you, Brandon, why do you think it is that humans don't go outside anymore? And I'll just uh, refresh for listeners that the explanation or or the options that are discussed in the text between CDC and IBEM, uh, CDC says that when he was young, humans used to say they wouldn't go out of the city because of black flies. But CDC says, well, that can't really be true, of course, because there's actually like, you know, insect repellent that would handle that, that it's and and IBM talks then about how it's really this dependency on or or not dependency, but that there are the fact that there are replicators. So why should we bother to go outside? And so I'll just repeat the question then, Brandon, is why do you think that they aren't going outside? I'm going to use this question as an opportunity to plug a writer Every American who's concerned about agriculture and community should be reading. His name is Wendell Berry, and his major philosophy that he is a proponent of is something he calls agrarianism, which is about how sustainable farming and small farming communities are extremely important to the continued success of not just America, but anywhere in the world as being able to continue to be a civilization. Um, Western civilization was founded on farming in a lot of ways. And I think what happens is when you get away from the farm, urbanization is the only alternative. This is something that's happening today. We have a global population where over 51% of the people in the whole world live in cities and no longer in rural areas. There's a massive problem in the US right now where our rural communities are forgotten. Um, This was something that was brought up in our past election that was a big feature of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump's political rhetoric during the election cycle about how the rural communities in this country have been forgotten. Um, NPR just did a great podcast called S-Town, which is about a man who views his rural Alabama community as a third world country. This has been a long 
lasting problem in America and in the world is how do we create food without relying on six inches of topsoil and rain? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this is one of the solutions that Star Trek answers uh, much later on in the late 80s, but Wolf answers here is we just synthesize food. Um, And that would be naturally the result if your production chain is unstopped now as it is from the farm to the city how much more will it be unbroken when you're able to create food in a lab or by ordering tea earl gray hot (laughs) from your computer so something that i saw in the text uh or I, i can't say i saw it in the text brandon but something i felt in the text that i don't actually think is the case but uh thinking of cdc's story about having to rescue this foolish human who was attempting to emulate the deeds of St. Kennedy the Less, I got the impression that that there had been some sort of environmental catastrophe. It's not there in the text. There's nothing explicit. It was This was an inference that I had made. And I'll, I'll say that Mark Aramini suggests this as well in his reading, though I, he brings this up as a sort of unanswered question, again, because for the same reasons that I am shrugging my shoulders and I'm asking the question to you, because I don't think that's actually what's going on here. But but what do you think? Was there some kind of environmental catastrophe that has forced humans to live in cities that are kind of like self-contained worlds? I really don't think so. That's not, it's really not the reading that I got. And again, this could be colored by my interest in agrarianism as a philosophy is that you don't need environmental catastrophe to have people move to cities and have cities sprawl. All you need is a a production chain. And so when you're able to produce food, people are going to move to where that food can be gotten. And I really think that the replicator, as we call it in this story, is enough to explain the massive move towards urbanization and the lack of interest in the wilderness. This was a big concern of the 70s and 80s. I feel like the environmental groups really started paying attention to people ignoring and being unaware of the dangers of the world outside of their small enclaves. Yeah, I think this is a much better reading. I do think that that urbanism as a sort of isolated way of life is really what Wolf is addressing here and pointing to, I think, kind of clearly as an ill. I think that that humanity seems kind of dehumanized in some sense in this story. And I think perhaps it's related to this, uh, I'll say it's related to this lack of a relationship with the earth anymore, with our environment, with our natural environment. That in fact, in some ways, what we see in this story actually is that humans are living more artificially than robots are, than artificial life is. Not only that, and and that view I think is complicated and underlined by Mark's ability to survive in the wilderness where robots cannot. Adaptability is a trait of humans that Wolf doesn't write into his robots. His robots are unable to adapt to situations where their survival is on the line. Yeah, that's going to lead into my second question here, Brandon, or my second category of questions here about this world building, which is is this. What are robots for? Or maybe to put it another way, why do we need rangers? Why does the wilderness need people, or whether they're humans or robots, to be out there checking on bears? <laughs> what, 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 what is the purpose of this? Let me bring up a point of Christian theology that I think Wolf is 
a fan of, and it's this, that part of the creation stories in Genesis are about the mandate for man from God, and I should say mankind, to subdue the earth, that is to be stewards of the earth. It's not to dominate the earth. So here we have two pictures of mankind in this story. One is the domination of earth, which is represented in the cities, but the other is the stewardship of earth that is represented by the rangers. Um, We are told in the story that there are fewer than 10 left in the world of these forest rangers. So I think that this is the odd wolf story that actually requires an understanding of that assumption that is given in Christian theology to really fully unpack why we have rangers at all when everything is self-sustained in the cities. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right here, Brandon, to point to this notion that the robots now are the stewards of the earth, that humanity has seemingly lost, they may have dominion, as you point out, but they have lost stewardship. And uh, something that occurred to me, not while I was reading the, the story, Brandon, but actually while you and I have been talking this evening, uh, this reminded me of, of the famous line at Matthew 5, 5, that the meek shall inherit the earth. And, and I, I wonder, thinking ab- about the comment you just made about robots' lack of adaptability, and that IBEM is going to be the, is, is the character here who's not going to survive this catastrophe, that Mark likely is going to. Are the robots the meek who have inherited the earth? I think this story points to the opposite, that Mark is really the meek in this story, that he is the one who lacks hubris, he lacks pride, but he is interested in doing his job well. And he takes umbrage to IBEM's suggestion that the robots are better at forest rangering than humans are. And that is actually part of what gets them to talking about bears, as we discussed earlier in the story. Mark is forced to retire at age 30. I say forced even though I don't know that there's real textual evidence there. But Glenn, as you brought up CDC's retirement at the age of 32, there's some real Logan's run business being played in this story. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what to, to make of all of that, Brandon. And again, here, I think I'll just call on the wolf pack to, to help us out and figure out uh, how to read this part of the text. We need you with this one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, let's transition then into the sort of second big uh, chunk of questions that I have here about humanity and robotity. And the first question I want to, to address, Brandon, that I'll pose to you is, why, at the beginning of the story, do the young robots want to pass for human? It's not just Ibem, it's, it's his, all of his classmates. They all want to pass for human. Why? Yeah, I have to say I was a little bit curious about this as I was reading this story There is some fascination with being recognized and participating in human community, which reminds me of Ishiguru's novel, of which I've only seen the film adaptation of Never Let Me Go, where you have a bunch of people who are either clones or harvested for their organs, who are living this big life while they can. And part of it is playing human at a soda shop, really. And it's just Interesting to me, that's really what I thought about was like, these guys are just trying to play as big of a life as they can, even though they know it's fake, before they go out into the wilderness and they're alone. And I think Ibem mentions that their training is really 
trying to prepare them for being alone. Yeah, and they and so much of this attempting to pass for human at the beginning here is about these robot kids uh, pretending to eat in this soda shop. And I want to call out or point it, uh, call attention to how disgusted IBM is at actual human eating at the end of the story. The story kind of begins with him pretending to drink sodas at this soda shop and ends with him being disgusted by Mark eating blubber. What do you think that tells us about this world and about the nature of robots in this world? I think what it tells us about the nature of the world is that in the cities, people no longer eat to survive in a way that is without manners, perhaps, without grace. And when he encounters the human will to survive for the first time, he is disgusted by the lengths by which humans will go to survive. And maybe part of this is caught up in Mark's taking the life of the seal. Oh, that's a really fascinating point, Brandon, that had not occurred to me. But I suppose seals would have been something that's covered in marine biology. And we know that this is something, right, that, that then that IBM has learned quite a bit, perhaps, about seals and might empathize with them in, in some way, in the same way that he's empathizing with Mark in other places in the story. And yeah, it might actually simply be that this almost strikes him as murderous to take the life of another creature and to consume it. Especially to survive. And he talks about how he cannot cannibalize the snow jeep. <laughs> for his own survival. And I think there's some real parallels being played at there. Yeah, that's a really awesome observation. So the last thing I want to talk about, Brandon, is IBEM's feelings. And I just want to point out kind of a list of of feelings that IBEM has throughout the text, words that Wolf uses explicitly, and they are uh, loneliness, anxiety, worry about Mark, sensitivity to Mark's pride. IBEM feels anger. He feels horror. He feels frustration. And he also reads Mark's expressions and body language, and he also uses similes. So he has a full, rich, emotional life. Are these feelings real in this machine, or are they just programmed? I think they're real. I'm really astonished, as I think I hinted at before, about the way Wolf has changed his treatment of robots between the horrors of war and this story. What's fascinating to me, and I think what robotics and artificial intelligence scientists are beginning to discover now is that the only way you can get an artificial intelligence to do what you want it to do without programming it is to have it discover its own value system toward the world. So recently, a bunch of programmers trained an artificial... They didn't train it. They told an artificial intelligence in a computer... They designed it with something like a human body to get from point A to point B in the quickest way possible, and it taught itself to run. This is something that robotics is having a very difficult time with now, is without a sense of the world around them, robots have a very difficult time performing basic tasks like opening a door or going up and down stairs. Without knowing what's important, it's very difficult for an artificial intelligence as we are on the very early stages of that science today to encounter the world and understand what they ought to be doing, how their program should operate. And I think Wolf was way ahead of his time in understanding that that would be a problem of programming consciousness. And what we've seen in this story in particular is 
Wolf struggling with the idea of how to give these artificial intelligences consciousness so that they can improvise in their work. Yeah, you make some wonderful points there, Brandon. One thing I want to I want to zoom in on that you talked about there is this evolution, perhaps, in Wolf's own thinking. And I think it's really important to point to the horrors in the horrors of war as a real significant step here. As I, I was trying to just be funny, to be amusing in uh, the recap when we covered horrors of war of pointing out that the horrors have similar rules as Isaac Asimov's robots have. But in fact, that story is very much about discovering that there is more to those robots than that set of rules. And here, when we get to IBAM, these are Wolf's robots. He has abandoned Asimov's robots as a model entirely. And we now have what is recognizably Wolf's robots. IBAM is the sort of person that we are going to meet again in the Book of the Long Sun, which is you know 20 years after this story, written 20 years after Wolf wrote this story. That is a wonderful point. And I think it's important for people who are fans of the intellectual history, for lack of a better term, of science fiction, to, to recognize that Wolf is breaking with the tradition Asimov started here in a very significant way. And it's really fantastic to see that here in these early stories. I mean, this question of of what it means to be human as seen through Wolf's robots is something, one of the things, is, as we've said repeatedly, as I've said repeatedly, Brandon, to, to our listeners, is, is something that brings me to Wolf. It keeps me, brings me to Wolf and keeps me coming back. And I love pondering these these questions about, uh, the, these questions that, the, that Wolf's robots raise about what it means to be human. How can we tell if someone is a person? Uh, and this story does a great job of pointing out several things that might point to personhood and some things that probably don't matter all that much, like mobility. It's great stuff. And, and it's something I've been really enjoying tracking is Wolf's development of his theory of robotics and what robots should be doing. Before we wrap up, Glenn, I have a surprise question for you that, uh, I just I just don't know what to make of. So maybe we'll throw it out again to our to our listeners to the Wolf Pack. What is with Mark's burning eyes that Ibem cannot see in the opening of this story? Wow, that is a question that had not occurred to me, Brandon. But you're right. That's a the sentence where that appears is this really visceral and visual line, and. I you know I have to think thinking about the word burn and the sort of the, the senses in which we use that. We often I think although I can't point to an example off the top of my head, but we talk about eyes burning, and we don't mean that they sting with dryness. We when we say that we mean that there's a light in them, and we'll often say they're burning with anger or something like that in, in the eyes. But that's clearly well I shouldn't say clearly that doesn't seem to be what he means here. He can't visually see Mark's eyes. Um, so I have to think that perhaps here this means has something to do with the light, the burning light of Mark's spirit, Mark's soul. So I wonder if that is what's happening here, if that's if if Ibem is thinking about how Mark has a soul. I do, but but I don't know. At this point, I'm just throwing things out there. I think we'll have to rely on the wolf pack for this one, and I'd be real excited to hear about this. Yeah, that's a that's a great suggestion, Glenn. I really struggled with this in the story, and it's in those paragraphs that we brought up in the beginning that have stumped both you and I. Who is the you Ibem is addressing, and how can he, without having sight, see Mark's eyes burn? 
Well, Brandon, I think we should leave listeners with that question. And so uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of IBEM. And Brandon, I think this is now the story in which we have most frequently asked the Wolfpack to weigh in on these issues that you and I, or questions that you and I had trouble answering. So really, please come let us know what you thought of some of these questions. I really look forward to seeing our listeners' interpretations here because quite honestly, I don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) So next time we'll be covering the story, Sonia, Crane, Wesselman, and Kitty, which you can find in the collection, Stories from the Old Hotel. Until then, we greet you... And we say farewell.